0: And as you're getting situated, if you would open your copy of the scriptures, whether that's electronic or paper, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Power-packed bunch of scriptures here with all sorts of great pictures and admonitions and truths for us. Uh, May God really bless us and lead us nearer to Him the passage begins this morning with, You therefore my son. You therefore my son. The scripture that we look at there is directly connected to what Paul has already written in this final letter of his. Remember a few weeks ago when we were introduced to Second Timothy. This is Paul's final swan song of a letter. There will be no more after this. He is in a situation that I'll describe again in just a bit that is the end of his life. What will he write? What will he say? And this is what we're digging into for the next several weeks. The powerful commands given in chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 give Timothy right now a critical instruction for the spiritual warfare that he faces. If you're there in Second Timothy, please look back into chapter 1 beginning with verse 13 which is where some of this statement begins. Paul says in verse 13, Hold fast, Timothy, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me among whom are Fagellus and Hermogenus. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Paul ordered Timothy here to hold fast. Hold fast the pattern of the sound words, the things that he had been teaching. Told him to guard the good thing that was entrusted to him by the Holy Spirit. In other words, he orders Timothy to give his life for the gospel. He then reminds Timothy, he reminds Timothy about two men. Two men who Timothy probably knew very well. But two men who had turned traitors in this war for Christ. And then he tells him about another man. Another had proven to be a faithful soldier at Paul's side. In light of these commands and these testimonies, and with the future of the church in Ephesus at stake, Paul says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, the strength for faithfulness. The Greek word for strong here means to empower, to increase in strength. And it comes from the, the root word many of you have heard of, it's dunamis, and it means miraculous powder, power, mighty, wonderful works, a force, the dunamis. Now, this is important, this is an important concept. This is not a command to do the impossible or to buck it up and bite the bullet. You might read the words where it says, be strong, and think, well, I would like to be just that, but I'm not. So what do I do? Well, be strong. Be strong here is in the imperative verb, which confirms that, yes, it is a command from God, but it is also in the passive form. It makes it very interesting here. This meant means it is a command that we are to obey, but our role is that we must allow and even seek to have this happen to us. It is more clearly translated in the ESV where it reads, Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This grace of Christ. This unmerited favor of God. Receiving blessings of eternal life. That's grace. Sonship with God the Father. That's grace. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we have. That is grace. Union with Christ. Joining the body of Christ to be a part of this. That's God's grace. Knowing God will never leave and He will never forsake us. That is an unmerited gift of God, His grace. These and many, many more are some of the undeserved blessings that God showers upon us when He saves us, which we by no means deserve. Donald Guthrie states grace here, has the usual Pauline meaning of unmerited favor, but it includes within the divine enabling. Think back to Ephesians 2 when Paul wrote there. Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Awesome. We were dead in sin. We were not comatose. We were not severely ill with sin. We were dead in sin. We had no ability to respond to God because of our sin. Grace came. Romans 5 says, but God demonstrates His own love. And if you've ever wondered, well, what's the picture of how God loves? He says, this is how I love. God demonstrates His own love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't when we were about to turn the corner in becoming more righteous. Not at all. It wasn't when we were beginning to make some slight improvements that God looked down and said, I'm going to give it to him and help him through. No, it says when we were enemies, when we were sinners, when we were completely without the capability to come to God, that is when this great Savior came and gave his life for us. All by grace. But in Ephesians 2, 8-10, it then goes on to say, For we are His workmanship. We were made by Him. We were crafted by Him. And it says, Then we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God then, after creating it or in a way of creating us, He crafts us with abilities, skills, gifts, that we can be used for specific good works, which it says He prepared beforehand for us to do. Fellow by the name of Doriani explained, "This grace empowers believers for good work that does not earn God's favor, but does receive it." Why would God, the Creator, I would ask, why would God, the Creator, actually be pleased with our good works when He created us? He customized us with specific abilities and giftings. He prepared the good works for us to do before we even existed. And He gave us the power to do these prepared good works. Why would He then be pleased with us? But He is. He is pleased when His children walk in good works. Here's an illustration from the engineering world that I hope will help us understand how we are given commands by God and yet we must be enabled by God's grace to even do what He has commanded. This is taken from MacArthur's commentary. It reads, several years ago, engineers in New Jersey were building a bridge over the mouth of a river on the Atlantic coast. As they were putting down pilings, they came across the hole of an old ship that was buried deep in the sand. To keep the bridge on the planned route, the hole would have to be removed from the riverbed. After they tried every mechanical means they could think of, the ship remained stuck fast. A young engineer suggested floating in several large barges directly on the water surface above the hole on both sides of the sunken ship. Cables were run down into the water, placed underneath the wreckage hole, and attached tightly to the barges above during low tide. When the tide rose, the hole below was loosened some. At the next low tide, the cables were tightened again, and at high tide, the ship loosened some more. And after following that procedure for several cycles of tides, the ship eventually was freed. What humanly devised mechanical force could not accomplish, the immeasurably greater forces of God's creation accomplished easily. You see, we are commanded to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, which we could never do ourselves. It would be like pulling an immovable ship from the bottom of a river. Unless God's grace moves with power to strengthen us. Just as a tide that lifted the barges would lifted that sunken ship out of the sand. You see the ships were actually quite passive. But they were used by the power of the tide to free the wreckage. In the same way we are quite passive in our power and ability. But then we are empowered by God's grace with great strength to accomplish His will. It is God's power that works within us and enables us to do amazing things. But you see, Timothy will need this enabling power of God's grace to fight the battles in Ephesus. The key to making sure that all of this hard work of the gospel continues to grow in the hearts of men and women in Ephesus and around the world and from generation to generation That key is found in a simple strategy that Paul unfolds in verse 2. It's not only for the church in Ephesus, it is for New Hope Bible Church. It is for the churches all around the planet that are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This strategy, the strategy for faithfulness. And the things you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That strategy has four key components. Hearing, witnesses, committing, and men. Hearing, witnesses, committing, and men. Two actions, two groups. The first component, hearing. At the very beginning of the gospel chain, where this all begins, hearing was essential for whom? For Paul. Galatians 1, verses 11 through 12, Paul says this, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul heard the gospel directly from Jesus Christ. A most unique instructor and a most unique circumstance but Paul got it directly from Jesus the second link in the chain here was when Timothy then hears from Paul what Paul heard from Christ it says the things that you have heard from me the third link is the faithful men the faithful men who will hear from Timothy in the future and the fourth and final link are the others the others who will hear from the faithful men who heard from Timothy who heard from Paul Who heard from Christ. That is the strategy. That is a chain. Four generations of spiritual succession of the truth. Now why is hearing so important? Romans 10 verse 13 says. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Romans ten seventeen says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Absolutely essential is this sequential hearing of the gospel. The second component of this strategy is witnesses. Witnesses, Paul and Timothy. They travel together, speaking with hundreds, perhaps thousands, of in cities such as Lystra, Berea, Thessalonica, Corinth, Greece, Ephesus, and Jerusalem. Paul's message was heard far and wide by many, many witnesses, including men like Silas, Barnabas, and Luke, along with a great host of others. Why the witnesses? These witnesses provided two essentials. One, they provided accountability that Timothy preached what Paul preached. If Timothy got off track, these witnesses could say, Paul, I mean, Timothy, that's not what Paul preached. Get back on. They were witnesses to hold him accountable And they were also those who could verify to the doubter that yes, what you're hearing is what Paul preached. So there were witnesses there to verify and to hold accountable. The third component, commit. That word means to deposit something of great value into the responsibility and protection of someone else. It is like placing the expensive jewels and pearls of a family into a safe deposit box at a well-secured bank. Now this harkens back to what I read at the very beginning this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Remember there where Paul told Timothy, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. In faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you. Which was entrusted to you. Keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Such serious commitment was to be given to men possessing two crucial qualities. Paul was not just to go out and tell it everywhere and think that it was going to have the impact that was needed. There is a strategy of even who he was to speak to. Such serious commitment was to be given to men possessing two crucial qualities. They must be faithful men, trustworthy men, Men who have proven themselves, not simply skilled, not simply popular, not even necessarily men who have influence. That's not what Paul is saying here. He says, these men must demonstrate loyalty. This requires time and circumstance to evaluate. You don't know the true measure of a man's faithfulness until he endures fiery trials that test him. Then his metal is shown. Is he gold and steel or is he rust and clay? The trials will prove that. But the second criterion beyond being faithful is that he must be capable or able to teach others. Can this man really teach? Is he able to transmit information accurately and effectively to others? Not everyone can. Not everyone should. James wrote in chapter 3 verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now this is not an admonition to discourage those whom God has called to teach, but it is to give a sober warning of the seriousness of teaching. After several years of teaching the Word of God, I guarantee you that if you teach you will be judged more strictly by God and by those whom you teach and preach to. You must teach truth and live the truth you teach. You must teach truth and live the truth you teach. Paul is all over those false teachers in Ephesus That speak one thing and live another. The hypocrisy is rampant. They preach this way and then they're involved in these areas of sin. These men must be able to teach and they must be faithful men. Now, not all faithful men are capable to teach others. Not all capable teachers are faithful men. To achieve the greatest success using Paul's strategy... Timothy and our church right here must see both qualities in the men being prepared to teach and lead. To flesh this out, Paul then brings to the stage three portraits of faithfulness. We could call this faithfulness in 3D living color. Three portraits of faithfulness. First of all, the soldier of Jesus Christ. This warrior here pictures endurance and single-mindedness. First of all, the good soldier. Verse 3 says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We have requirements and we have rewards in each of these three portraits. The first requirement for the good soldier is that he must endure hardships. He will be afflicted. He will suffer trouble. Roman soldiers... Roman soldiers usually entered military service between 18 to 22 years of age for a term of 25 years. That was how long these men would sign up to serve 25 years. In the Roman army, a soldier's life was hard and tough, even for the most resilient men. They were taken from their homelands, away from their families and friends, and expected to defend provinces in far extremes of the empire. They had to endure hostile natives in foreign countries who were defending their homeland from invasion. They were expected to undertake grueling marches across rough and dangerous terrain in severe weather conditions and then fight long and arduous battles with fierce warriors. Above all, they had to obey all orders at once without question no matter the consequences that was a description given by a site called romano britain I want to stop and pray. I didn't do that at the beginning, and I want to ask God's blessing on this. Heavenly Father, as we dig into this, as you know, uh, we have need of you, just as Paul commanded Timothy, that we would be strengthened by the grace that is in you. And Lord, I forgive me for being like a, a horse chomping at the bit ready to race without surrendering it all to you. Father, I pray that you would help us. You know that it is difficult to understand and follow and it is difficult to speak. And we need your spirit, Lord, to draw us to you through your word. So please grant us the grace of your spirit's revelation to our hearts that we would see you in your word, and we would follow you completely. In your name I pray, amen. When Paul drew this picture of a soldier, we know that he was very familiar with the Roman military. Roman soldiers were often literally chained to Paul day and night. We often talk about what Paul may have shared with those guards. It, it looks as if some of them became followers of Christ through his testimony. But can you imagine the amazing tales of battles, violence, pain, suffering, and hardship that these soldiers, these soldiers shared with Paul during these hours? But Paul himself is well experienced in what hard life was. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The soldiers knew hardship. Look what Paul lived through. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ... I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. That's not the kind of clothing he wore. That means he was whipped. Innumerable times. Imprisoned more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often in perils of waters, in dangers of robbers, in dangers of my own countrymen, in danger of the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in dangers among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches." Paul had been through this. Do not forget where Paul is writing this letter from. It's the dungeon of death. It is the Roman infamous Marmiteen prison. It was a subterranean stone-walled, circular execution waiting room. 30 feet in diameter. Six and a half feet high. Holding 30 to 40 men. Occupied by dead bodies. Broken men darkness and stench when Paul exhorted men to undergo hardship for Christ none could ever say to him but Paul you don't know how hard this is Paul knew Paul had suffered the cruelest hardships imaginable move this forward today's army infantry they also must endure hardship in preparing for this message I interviewed a good friend on his experience as an army officer in the 25th Infantry. He explained how the training was designed to inflict constant and extreme stress on body and mind to push you to your limit. Food was removed to a minimum. Sleep was diminished to three to four hours. Then a 20 mile 20-mile 20 road march would be ordered while carrying 80 to 90 pounds of gear. Their winter training took place in the mountains and during deep snow and extreme cold. It was miserable, he said. You never felt warm or rested. They were placed on the warrior diet, eating only when they arrived and set up camp at midnight and then a quick bite at 4 a.m. before continuing the mission. But, he said, some of the most arduous trials or like those which took place in Iraq during a raid to capture an ISIS operative. By 4 a.m., we entered the target's home, captured him, and left. During that time, mothers, children, and many extended family were weeping at the loss of their husband, father, and son. Although the soldiers knew the evil work of this enemy, they also saw firsthand the broken hearts of those who loved him depended on him, And had now lost him. But if such is the hardship of the worldly soldier. Will the soldier of Christ be willing to suffer. Physically, mentally, and emotionally. For the eternal souls of men and women. Will we step up to battle and be willing to push, push, push past The physical, mental, and emotional limits that we have placed on ourselves. Now, this is not to earn salvation. That is the free gift of God. But this is to obtain the reward to be called a good soldier by our God. Reward here is a good soldier. The Military Good Conduct Medal is one of the oldest awards given in the U.S. Armed Services. It is given to any enlisted personnel after having completed three consecutive years of honorable and faithful service. But a Spiritual Warfare Good Conduct Medal for the soldier of Christ gives an eternally greater distinction than any bestowed by an earthly magistrate. The second soldier, the single-minded soldier verse 4 says no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier the requirement here is single-minded devotion this soldier cannot be it says entangled that word means to be entwined together uh, to be braided be braided together The picture is of a fully weaponed Roman soldier. He has his sword. He has his spear. He has a shield. He has a helmet. He has a breastplate. And as he moves, he gets caught up in his robe or in his cloak and gets all tangled and cannot do the battle. Another armed friend or army friend shared his experience about military demand for full devotion. He said, and I quote, Everything done in off time is done through the lens of being acceptable to the military or not. This affects day-to-day activities, relationships, mental and physical health. The death in the family? You need permission. Is there training? Have an emergency at home? What is it? You can't go. Need a break after your third 90-hour week in a row? Tough. The very essence of your individualism is diminished to the point of little existence for the good of the service, End quote. But Paul is not commanding Timothy to somehow extricate himself from the city of Ephesus and find a cave. Nor should he sit isolated on the top of a mountain and neither eat nor drink. And he certainly is not recommending believers to stop paying taxes or care for your spouse or your children or to not show up for your job. Things in life still require our attention. The affairs of this life are not intrinsically evil. There's nothing wrong in them themselves. But they must in no way compete for the throne of our heart. Nor are we to allow them, and this is where I think I fall, and and maybe perhaps you all, nor are we to allow them to overcome us with stress or disappointment or even exhilaration. Anything that draws us away from being fixed on the prize of Christ. Rather than letting the affairs of this world entangle us, let them become the platform at our feet upon which we step up and proclaim Christ with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let me say that again. Rather than let the affairs of this world entangle us, let them become the platform at our feet upon which we step up and proclaim Christ with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Use these things for the glory of Christ. The reward... What is the reward? Such single-minded dedication to the cause pleases the commanding officer. In Roman military, it pleased the one who enlisted him and vicariously the emperor himself. Why? Why would that be so pleasing? Because it showed that the heart and mind of the soldier belonged to Rome. The decisions of priorities displayed by such a soldier show that fear, wealth, pleasure, esteem, self-love have not unseated the authority of the emperor. If such is true for the Roman soldier, how much more for the soldier of Christ? His commanding officer is all the more pleased with a soldier's son or a soldier daughter who is, in the words of Hebrews chapter 12, who is looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. For you have not resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin. Keep your eyes on Christ. Matthew Henry wrote, The great care of a soldier should be to please his general. So the great care of a Christian should be to please Christ, to approve ourselves to Him. The way to please Him who has chosen us to be soldiers is not to entangle ourselves with the affairs of this life, but to be free from such entanglements as would hinder us in our holy warfare. In Proverbs chapter 4, it is written, Let your eyes look straight ahead, and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet. And let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the left or to the right. Remove your foot from evil. That is a single-minded soldier. Our second portrait. Our second portrait is of the competing athlete. Verse 5 says, And also if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So what's the requirement here? He must compete according to the rules. Athleo means to contend in competitive games. The games of Rome were called the Isthmian games. The requirement, if you wanted to compete, were that you must be Roman by birth and you must train for at least 10 months and swear before the idol of Zeus that you had done so. And then you must compete according to the rules of the specific event. Now according to the rules is actually one Greek word and it means literally it means legitimately agreeable to the rules of the list Paul used this word only one other time in all his letters it was earlier in chapter one of first Timothy he said but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully or according to the rules we have to use the law right we can't misuse it thinking it brings justification. Salvation, we must use it rightly. Now, as an 11-year-old little competitor, about five decades ago, I had to learn the hard way about competing according to the rules. Our middle school was having our first all-school track meet. Not a big field of competitors, but it was a huge deal to a young aspiring athlete like myself. Crowns were not awarded, but blue ribbons and the prestige of being the best in the school at something were high enough honors to capture my dreams. Seventy-yard low hurdles. I know some of you have run those races. A short race and really short hurdles at that age. And for some reason, running with these hurdles, obstacles, in the way seemed to give me an advantage that I didn't have in regular sprints against the other guys. As the weeks of practice and P.E. class went on, There were only a few other guys who even tried running hurdles and I was really getting the hang of the low, stretched out form and clearing the hurdles and I loved it. Finally, the day of the school meet arrived. The boys' low hurdles was the first event of the afternoon. I couldn't wait because it seemed like certain glory for me. As the other five runners and I crouched at the starting line, the adrenaline was surging through my little body. And bang, the starting gun went off and it was smooth sailing over the first hurdle and already getting a lead on the field. Over the second hurdle looking good. But then it happened. Somehow, I landed a bit off and took a short hop. That, of course, changed my steps just enough that by the time I reached the third third hurdle, I was going to crash right into it. So, I took evasive action And I sidestepped that hurdle, going just slightly to the left in the open field beside me, and then slipped right back into my lane. I cleared the remaining hurdles and finished the race in pretty good time, only slightly delayed, but it didn't matter. Much to my surprise, and you may be surprised that I was so surprised, but I didn't really know much about track and field at that point in life. The finish line judge came over and quickly told me I was disqualified. It didn't matter what your time was, he said, because going around a hurdle was against the rules. You can knock them down going over them, but you cannot go around them. I was crushed. I begged for mercy, literally, I did. Another chance, penalty of a few seconds, but I was disqualified. Unfortunately, I went over to that fence surrounding the playground track and actually sobbed for much longer than I'd like to admit. Because I was both embarrassed and I was terribly disappointed in losing that reward. But you don't receive it if you don't follow the rules. Likewise, to be a truly faithful man or woman of God, you must follow the rules given by the judge of all creation. You see, living for Christ is not just a freestyle affair driven by emotion and creativity. God has given us clear direction in His Word on how He desires we live. To go your own way will disqualify you. To choose to disobey the commands of God results in disaster. Saul, an ancient king, lost his literal crown because he chose not to obey the rules God had laid out for him. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, So Samuel said, Samuel the prophet, to Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Lord, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. What a result. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Listen to this. This this is sobering. Not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus speaking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. For many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? And then I will say to him, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Tragedy. But what is the reward for the obedient? It is the crown. It is the wreath of reward. 2 Timothy 4 verse 8 says, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. James 1, 12, Blessed is a man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And finally, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. This goes so well with what we're looking at. Don't fear any of these things you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to be thrown, is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation. Ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. See, the law of God is good. The Scriptures tell us that. Then obedience to it provides many benefits. One is, it is how we demonstrate our love for Christ. John 14, 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. 1 John 5, verses 2 through 3. By this we know that the love of God. By this we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. And obedience leads to abundant living. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. Moreover, by them as your servant warned. In keeping them, in keeping them, there is great reward. There is great reward. The third portrait. The hardworking farmer. Verse 6 says, The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. So what's the requirement here? There are actually two. He must be hardworking. It is a word meaning to feel fatigue. To be wearied. One Writer says it is to labor to the point of exhaustion. That's the kind of man this man was. And secondly, he must farm. He must be a worker of the soil. The farmers we know at our church, I would say they are the pictures of hardworking farmers. They are up before dawn to feed livestock. They are not done until dark and then sometimes way into the night for harvest or repairs or birthing calves. Farmers work hard mentally and physically, and many pray hard spiritually. One writer's description is this. He endures the cold, the heat, the rain, and the drought. He plows the soil whether it is hard or loose. He does not wait for his own convenience because the seasons do not wait for him. When the time comes to plant, he must plant. When weeds appear, he must remove them. And when the crop is mature, he must harvest it. Unlike the teacher, the soldier, and the athlete, a farmer often works alone. He has no students to stimulate him, no fellow soldiers to fight with him, no teammates or crowd to cheer him. What drives that man to such hard toil is the harvest. The harvest. The reward here is to be first, the protos, the foremost to partake of the crops. Now one farmer told me that actually the bank, the tax collector, and a few others get the first fruits. And even among God's people in ancient times, many taxes and offerings were required from the farmers. Proverbs 3, 9 commands, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. Yet, yet it is the farmer who planted, raised, and harvested the crop that has the right to its use and distribution. With the hard work comes the privilege of harvest, reaping what was sown. In a God-blessed year, along with hard work, harvest is a time of great reward. Calvin wrote this, The meaning, therefore, is that husbandmen do not gather the fruit till they have first toiled hard in the cultivation of the soil, by sowing and by other labors. And if husbandmen or farmers do not spare their toils, that one day they may obtain fruit And if they patiently wait for the season of harvest, here's the application. How much more reasonable will it be for us, how much more unreasonable will it be for us to refuse the labors which Christ enjoins upon us while He holds out so great a reward? Paul seems to actually then close this little section himself. And what does he say? He says, think about it. Think about what I've just said. Verse 7, Consider what I say And may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Even in this conclusion, there is still the sense of requirement and reward. The requirement here is that you must consider. The word means to exercise the mind. To observe carefully. One commentator said that the form of the verb suggests a strong admonition by Paul. Not mere advice to give deep thought to what he was writing. So what would the reward be? The reward will be understanding. It's the Greek word, and it means a mental putting together. Things will become clear. God will give you full understanding if you will meditate and think this through. Hendrickson wrote, mere reading is not enough. What has been written must be pondered. What has been spoken must be digested. And again, Calvin said, he added this, Paul, Paul added this, not an account of the obscurity of the comparisons which he has set forth, but that Timothy himself might ponder how much more excellent is the warfare under the direction of Christ and how much more abundant the reward. Let me say that again. To ponder how much more excellent is the warfare under the direction of Christ and how much more abundant the reward. Are are we willing to be these kind of men and women. This is particularly aimed at the men and the teachers that Paul was discipling and directing. But has application for all who would want to follow Christ and disciple within their homes, disciple others around them, to lead, to suffer, to endure, to show faithfulness. Will we do that? We're coming upon a time when when we will really probably see warfare in ways that we haven't understood before spiritually. And we will be called upon to be pushed past the limits that we have placed upon ourselves. What are your limits? Think about those men, this this army ranger who day after day were pushed past their mental and physical, emotional limits. Are we willing to do that? Some people will hear this and say, you're talking legalism, man. I'm not talking legalism. I am saved by the grace of Christ. I'm more filthy probably than anyone here in my past. But God took my sin, nailed it to that tree with His Son Christ, and Christ paid that price for me. But sometimes in our culture, and Christian culture in general, sometimes we think that anytime we start to talk about enduring and hardship and giving ourselves fully and sacrificing then when we're talking about legalism, we are not. We have a Master, Savior, Lord, God, Father, King. And we have opportunity to serve Him with our best. Don't be afraid of pushing yourself beyond what you thought you could do. Commit yourself to this great God and King for He is worthy. And you will find great reward. In conclusion here, I would really ask you to consider this. To those who are willing to accept God's commands for faithfulness, write out three applications to your own life under each of these four traits, and they're listed at the bottom. That could be searching out scriptures that support these different traits. It could be a personal discipline that you want to take on. Getting up earlier. Working this into my day schedule every day. Something along that line. Something you will give up, perhaps. A means of accountability that will hold you to help you grow. Confession, repentance, many other things. You think. But I want you to do as Paul said here at the end. Think about this. Consider it carefully. And draw upon the Word of God to make application to your life three under each of those four, and then I would ask you to do it within the next 36 hours. That's arbitrary. But if you don't, there's a good chance you probably won't. So try to take some time and invest yourself in the Word of God. And then I would ask you to pray. And it's really beautiful here because what do we pray? We pray what Paul told Timothy at the beginning, that we would be strengthened by the grace That is in Christ Jesus. That's the only way anything you write down here will ever come to pass for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your long suffering, your patience with us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your mercy and forgiveness that continues moment by moment as we still struggle with sin, laziness, foolishness, worldly desire. Lord, but you are so good. You have paid it all. Father, I pray that you would raise us up. That we would live for you like this soldier, like this athlete, like this farmer. We give our lives fully to you as husbands, as fathers, as mothers, as wives, as single men and women. Lord, in the classroom, at the manufacturing plant, in our homes, wherever we are, Lord, please make us to be men and women who are mighty in faith, who are strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.